you would again uh, take out your Bible and let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. And we will today be looking at verses 1 through 19. In Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on on Isaac his son. And he, took his, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he be pleased to bless it to our hearts. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thankful for this reading of your word. We're thankful, God, for the picture of the gospel, which is so apparent 
in this. We pray, O God, for this Your servant. Uh, May this text be explained in a way that we can all understand. May we see Christ and His work of redemption. And may we give Him glory and just stand in awe. Thank you, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we uh, now come to a section of Scripture which I think beautifully captures an aspect of the Gospel that is the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even as we can see how this points to the doctrine, we do come to a section which is admittedly a disturbing text, particularly on the surface. When you first read this, you think, Whoa! God's telling Abraham to sacrifice his son. I cannot even imagine what Abraham was going through when God commanded him to offer Isaac. His son, his only son, the text points out, to bring Isaac as a burnt offering. This would have been so contrary to everything that Abraham knew about God. And yet, this was the very thing that he was called to do. This was to be Abraham's final test. A test not in the sense in which you maybe think about tests, like you know, Abraham had been studying diligently for this test, you know, this exam, and now here's the final exam in class. That's not the kind of test that is in mind here. This was a test in the sense of proving Abraham's faith like you would prove a precious metal that is proven to be genuine. And the Christian, too, is often tested in his or her faith by God. As we experience adversity, as we experience hardship and trials, which are designed to prove the quality of our faith, and in some cases to improve the quality of our faith, that we would obey God in real time and space, not just in theory. Not that, you know, in theory we'll obey God, but know that we really need to. The the rubber needs to meet the road sort of obedience to God. You might say you're a Christian, but when the misery of this life begins to weigh heavily upon you, you begin to feel crushed under that load, how then will you react? Will you remain as a Christian? Or will you, like many, do walk away saying, you know, God is of no help to me. True saving faith is a gift from God. Those who are saved, those who are Christians, will react with obedience to God and to His Word. The, the genuine faith will not buckle under the load of sin. Now, this is not to say that you will react perfectly in every circumstance. Far from that. But you will be refined and you will grow in your faith and in your love for your Savior and in your your obedience to His Word. So as Isaac is bound, as he is brought to the slaughter, Abraham is being tested in this way. Will he remain faithful to God or will he buckle under his own sinful desires? God had given Abraham true faith. And now that faith was to be tested. It was to be proven to be the genuine article. And this was for Abraham's benefit. But it's also for our benefit as well. But it wasn't really for the benefit of God. It's not that God didn't know it was going to take place. God already knew the genuineness of Abraham's faith. 
Abraham needed to see where the source of his strength was from. And so do you and I as well. And so as we come to our text, uh, we can say that there are a lot of things going on. In fact, there's so many parts to this that I really can't touch on everything in the time that we have together. And so I, I feel almost not up to the task, but all I can do is scratch the surface. But these 19 or so verses, uh, they pack a lot of, in, of ideas and theological insights. And so we will do the best we can to glean as much as we can uh, in our time together. And so now as we jump into our text, some time had passed between the events which had preceded and that would be the birth of Isaac, the exile of Ishmael, uh, the treaty that was made with Abimelech. And so at this point, Isaac has grown some. He's, he's grown at least to the point where he could chop wood and carry enough wood for a sacrifice. So it gives you some idea of how old, at least how old Isaac would be. And so presumably some years have gone by, and we read this, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. Now, some translations read God tempted Abraham. But that's not quite the sense. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 13 says that God tempts no one. And so it is not that God is tempting Abraham in the sense of you know, tempting Abraham to do something evil. Rather, the word used here in Hebrew has the idea of proving or, or trying. That's really the sense. It's a trial of sorts. For example, one might prove a precious metal to see if it is pure with some kind of trial. And so here, Abraham's faith is being proven by God to be true. Abraham was to endure a trial which would pit his obedience to God against his trust in God. And what we will see is that these two things are really not in opposition to one another. Now, the information of verse 1 is provided to us as the reader, but of course is not divulged to Abraham himself. He does not understand what is happening. But it is recorded here for us to ensure that we, the readers, are not confused. So it should be clear. God was not authorizing in any way human sacrifice. Hence, why we are told that this was a test. By giving this background information then, the reader is alerted to the fact that the boy was not going to be sacrificed. This was not going to happen. Okay? Isaac was not going to be sacrificed. It's all part of God's plan. And to be clear too, God was not enticing Abraham to do anything wrong. Rather, his worthiness as the object of God's covenant favor is being demonstrated. Abraham, in the request then, is being torn between his faith in God's covenant promises and the command to nullify them by his obedience. Between his love for God and his love of the gift from God, namely his own son Isaac. So you can see uh, the situation that Abraham finds himself in. In fact, Abraham finds himself in what seems to be an impossible situation. And so God calls to Abraham by name. And Abraham responds, I, here I am. Abraham is ready to obey God in whatever God may ask him to do. And so what he is asked to do is shocking and disturbing. Verse 2. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. 
go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So the identification of the sacrifice is detailed in painfully precise terms. Notice, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. There's no ambiguity. He was to take his only son, Isaac. The repetition emphasizes the fact Abraham is not confused in in any little bit because of this repetition. Abraham understands exactly what God is asking. Isaac was Abraham's only son because Ishmael had been removed from the covenant community. He was all Abraham had left. Isaac, too, was the promised son. He's the heir of the promise, the covenant promises of God, through whom God's covenant promises would be worked out. And he was the beloved son. He was precious in Abraham's sight. So this precious, this only son of Abraham, the heir of the promise, was to be taken to the land of Moriah, and he was himself to be slaughtered and offered as a whole burnt offering. One commentator called this one of the most theologically difficult texts of the Old Testament. Although the firstborn always belongs to the Lord, Exodus 13 tells us, this command from God creates a seeming, seemingly creates moral problems. 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, wrestling with this text in his book Fear and Trembling, saw God's demand upon Abraham as absurd. He thought how illogical it is to ask Abraham to violate the moral law of God, namely the murder and sacrifice of his son. So he looks at this and thinks, this is absurd. How could Abraham do such a thing? A thing which, by the way, would further negate the promises of God. If if Isaac is put to death, how is God's promises going to come to pass? Again, you see the conundrum. The command of God upon Abraham is troubling on many levels. And by the way, even as a reader, we should be troubled, right? We should be able to say, okay, what's going on here? You know, not everything in the Bible is things that are just so easy to read and you think, oh, this is great, you know, oh, this is so encouraging, right? We, we should be troubled by this, but then there is an answer to all of it, too. There's a sense in which this command is balanced on the edges of morality, but ultimately it is not absurd and it is not illogical. Abraham may not have understood God's command in terms of what God was planning to do. He, he may have been perplexed even by it. He didn't know why or how God was going to work out such a thing. But here's what Abraham did know. Abraham knew God was good and he trusted God. He trusted God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. As the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him, that is Isaac, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So God is here asking Abraham to do this unthinkable thing. Now, let's set aside the moral problem just for a moment with the offering up of Isaac as a whole burnt offering. This, of course, would be murder, contrary to the law of God. But set that aside for a moment. Isaac was the promised heir through whom God's covenant promises would come. And if God were to put him to death, and by the way, God can do as he pleases, 
then he must intend on raising him from the dead. Right? He, there's some, some, God is going to do something here. And figuratively speaking, as the writer of Hebrews points out, in one sense, that's exactly what he does. And so verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. Notice the urgent and immediate obedience to God's instructions. He rises early in the morning. You would think on a day like that you might want to sleep in. Yeah, he's obedient to God. He understands. Abraham understood and he lived out the truth that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the Lord. Unlike with Ishmael, when Abraham tried to convince God to allow Ishmael to be the heir, there is here no debate. Abraham is silent. He simply gets up early in the morning, prepares his mount, takes two young men along with him and his son Isaac. He cuts the necessary wood for the burnt offering, and then he sets out for the place which God told him to go. Now this would have been a very extremely difficult command to obey. Imagine, particularly as a parent, imagine the Lord asking you to do such a thing. Could, Could you do such a thing? The reader is left to remember the weight of burden which is upon Abraham as he begins his journey. Abraham's beginning his journey with this weight upon him. But he's trusting in the Lord also. He obeys with quick devotion. All the preparations for sacrifice were apparent to the two young men as, as well as Isaac, except for the sacrifice itself, which, unbeknownst to them, was to be the boy himself. Verse 4 then indicates that this is a three-day journey. Three days in the biblical world was the typical period of preparation for something important. There are some who have questioned then the place. Where is this land of Moriah? Uh, It is... um, Traditionally thought that it's the city of Jerusalem itself and you know the, what is the Temple Mount would have been that, that same mountain. Um, but the travel to travel from Beersheba to Jerusalem would not would have been less than a three-day journey. Um, of course, it being three days does, does not require it to be three complete days. But whatever the case may be, the Lord led Abraham to the place, and Abraham lifts his eyes and he sees from afar, this is the place where to go. And so here, though he had brought his servants along, uh, they're now left behind. Look at verse 5. He says, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Notice that Abraham indicates that both he and Isaac will return. We will go and we will return. Kind of clues us in that maybe Abraham knows some, God's going God's to do something here. He doesn't know maybe what. He knows he must sacrifice his son to God and that God had promised through Isaac would come ne- uh, the blessings to the nations that he was the heir of promise. How are these things to be reconciled? God, in Abraham's mind, well, God is going to work this out. <laughs> Somehow God's going to work this out. Abraham was to trust. He was to have faith that even God could raise Isaac from the dead. Either way, he, he's confident that they both will return and see these two young men again. 
And so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, he laid it on Isaac, laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they both went together. Isaac then becomes the beast of burden, carrying the wood and himself the sacrificial lamb. This brings to mind Christ carrying his own cross, doesn't it? Christ carrying the cross to Golgotha. He was the beast of burden and uh, the, the offering, as it were. This must have been a moment of great tension. Isaac carries the wood which is intended for his own destruction. Now at this point in the story, Isaac finally speaks. These are the first words recorded uh, in the scriptures of his. And he realizes there's no offering. Behold, the fire, the wood, but where's the lamb? Isaac sees that there's no sacrifice. But he's not, he doesn't seem disturbed by this. He's trusting implicitly in his father. Now Abraham's answer is not evasive. It's open and it's honest. Look at what, it, look at what Abraham says. You know, father, where, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham's faith was in God who would provide. In fact, Abraham understood that God would have to provide. God must provide. Because God's promises were on the line. And God's promises are always true. God must provide. God would have to be the source of the sacrifice. In the Levitical system of sacrifice, the offerer of the sacrifice was to provide for his own offering. Here, God would need to be the one to provide. These words become even more profound when we consider that God does indeed provide unexpectedly and at the very last moment, this ram. But this this scene takes on uh, even more profundity when we consider that it is God who would provide the sacrifice which saves you and I as well. God provides. Here is... Beloved congregation, here is a picture of the work of our Savior Jesus Christ. God provided His own Son, His only Son, as the sacrifice for the sins of His people. Jesus Christ, then, is the substitute for you and I. Jesus died in our place just as the, lamb was, or the ram was to die in Isaac's place. There are so many Christological pictures in play here. So many aspects which point us to Christ. God would provide His offering. And so Abraham and Isaac, they go together to the place. And the Lord led to the place that they'd led to the appointed place of worship. And Abraham built an altar, or rather, he may have actually rebuilt a, a, the altar there. He laid the wood in order there. And at this point, there are a number of issues then, which the writer of Genesis, Moses, blanks on. But they're worth considering. So here we are, ready for the sacrifice, but there's all these issues which aren't being told to us. Notice, first of all, that Isaac is bound. Now, Abraham's quite advanced in age, isn't he? We already know he's at least 100 years old. At this point, probably you know, 110, 115, perhaps. 
Isaac was maybe in his early teens. Perhaps he's at least that old, if not older. He is at least old enough to carry wood. He's, not, he's no longer that toddler you know, that Ishmael had made fun of. Okay? How is it that Isaac is bound? Was there some sort of struggle? We're not told. Isaac certainly was younger and faster. I mean, if, uh, if you, know, you, you have you know, a 100-plus-year-old man and a teenager, who's going to win the foot race? Was Isaac passively obedient, willingly surrendering himself to be sacrificed? Was Isaac aware of the command from God concerning himself? The writer blanks on these issues. The narrative is almost matter-of-fact, and the answers are not forthcoming. Nevertheless, the picture is painted for us of the passive obedience of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who Himself willingly and joyfully went to the cross on our behalf. The Father gave His Son as a sacrifice for sin. The wood being arranged on the altar gives the picture of the boy's willing participation as the intended sacrifice. And again, stress is given, this being His Son. So Isaac is bound. The Hebrew verb, uh, akkad. Nowhere else is this word used in connection with sacrifice. The only other place the word shows up is in connection with the stripes of the goats and lambs that Jacob acquires from Laban. It's the only other place this word is used. Perhaps Abraham took the time to bind Isaac so that there is not a last minute change of heart from his son. Or perhaps so that the knife would kill mercifully Taking time to the bind Isaac delays the painful ordeal which is about to take place. And verse 10 then describes the final steps of Abraham in, in very painfully deliberate uh, words. You can see the narrative just slowing down. Abraham reaches out his hand. He takes the knife Here is the moment of truth. This is the moment in which Abraham was to show his obedience to God. Does he trust the Lord? Does he love his own son more than he loves the Lord? Will he go through with this? He will. He's taking the knife into his hands. He has the knife now in his hands. He is going to slaughter his own son. Feel the tension and the narrative. And then, it's so glorious, isn't it? And then all of a sudden, the patriarch is interrupted. The angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so here we are, you know, as the, as the narrative is slow and deliberate, painfully so, Abraham is, is ready to strike in obedience to the Lord, and then God stays his hand. The heavenly messenger speaks with urgency. Do not lay your hand on him. Don't touch the boy. Do not kill him. Abraham's faith had been vindicated. And so at the last moment, a a moment which for Abraham would have been a moment of great dread and great sorrow, has now been turned to joy. 
God, in His special grace, had intervened. It's not that God did not know, in the sense of being unaware of Abraham's faith. Rather, God had now experienced the quality of his faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Abraham trusted God implicitly, and this has now been demonstrated, not just in theory. You know, a lot of times, you know, we, we sort of talk, think about our faith just sort of as a theoretical faith. Yeah, I, you know, I trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Abraham didn't just have this in theory. It was in reality. The rubber has met the road. This is just the sort of testing which happens to Christians even now. Not in the sense of what is happening here. You know, the Lord's not going to ask you to sacrifice your children. But you do experience the trials of life. You do suffer. You do experience sorrow. You do experience pain. And through this, your faith is vindicated and strengthened. Even as we're encouraged, indeed, you are a follower of Christ. Is this what James means when he says in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Beloved, you're no different from Abraham. You too will experience the trials of life. In fact, some of you, even right now as you listen, are indeed experiencing the trials of life. Is your, is your faith being vindicated in that? Abraham, though he was in great turmoil, though he was experiencing experiencing great grief, great sorrow, did not withhold his son, his only son, from the Lord. And so just as suddenly Abraham looked up and behold, behind him is a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham was indeed to offer a burnt offering, but there was to be a substitute for his own son. So here is the epitome, the the great prototype of substitutionary atonement. And so Abraham takes the ram and in the place of his son he slaughters that ram and he offers it up as a burnt offering. The Lord had provided a substitute. One who would take Isaac's place and thus fulfill all righteousness. God provided the ram to take the place of Abraham's son, Isaac. What grace this is, isn't it? It's this marvelous mercy which is shown here. Abraham then was right to trust in the Lord after all, for the Lord will provide. In fact, that ends up being what they call the place. The Lord provides. Remember again the question which Isaac asked, Father, where is the sacrifice? The Lord will provide. The angel of the Lord then calls a second time, emphasizing the importance of what had just taken place. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Remember that it was the Lord who had walked between the carcasses when he had cut the covenant with Abraham. 
The Lord is the one who had given circumcision as a sign confirming the covenant promises. It is God who had promised over and over and over. And now here the Lord swears to His covenant promise. And He swears by Himself because there is nothing greater than Himself to swear by. He is the unchanging God. And by swearing by Himself, He shows the unchanging nature of the promise. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's promises are sure. And Abraham, for his part, has proven himself to be full of faith. And so God responds by reiterating the promises. These are promises we've seen over and over and over again in Genesis. Verses 17 and 18. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So what we have here is a, is, a, is a gathered reiteration of all the previous promises. It's all the promises sort of lumped together. God will be Abraham's God. God will bless him. God will give him an abundance of offspring. And the offspring will own the lands. And they will own the places of their enemies. And they will be protected from harm. And the Lord will provide for them. This promise is similar in some sense to the words of Jesus who says that the gates of hell should not prevail against the church. The people of God will be empowered to storm the gates of the enemy, sin, Satan, and the world. And Abraham and his offspring after him will be blessed. They will multiply. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed the voice of God. Now the final language here underscores the certainty of the covenant. Previously the covenant was grounded in the will and the purpose of the Lord, but now has been transformed into both the will of Yahweh and the obedience of Abraham, an obedience which comes from the Lord and is ultimately fulfilled in the obedience of Christ our Savior. Therefore the blessing which is to come to the nations is because the seed of the woman was obedient, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Which then is to say that Abraham's obedience did not now cause God to keep his promises, but rather vindicates the reality of that promise. And God had brought Isaac back from the dead, as it were. Now also, this whole scene, the obedience of Abraham, the sacrifice, as it were, of the son, the substitute ram, all of this points to the ultimate sacrifice of which all of these things signify. Christ's work on the cross. Indeed, it is a blessing to the nations. Isn't it? Are we not here gathered? Those nations. In this very room. Members of those nations. Do we not pray for all the nations of our world? Christians throughout every land. All the nations have been blessed and are being now blessed through Christ. But this is possible because Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. God was, or Abraham was obedient to the Lord. Now the scene ends with Abraham returning to his young men and going together to Beersheba. And it's noted then as it ends that he lived at Beersheba. 
Now some note that only Abraham is mentioned as returning. It does not say Abraham and Isaac returned. We might wonder why does the author blank on this as well. It's not because Isaac doesn't return with them. We already know he does. But rather the story is about Abraham's faith, not Isaac's. Certainly um, Isaac didn't actually die Although some rabbinic sources have thought he did. It's kind of strange, I think, but some, some think that. But uh, obviously he doesn't die because, well, he turns up later in the narrative. <laughs> I don't know, just a little bit more reading will help you understand that. Uh, but the phrase went together is the same as what I said earlier concerning Abraham and Isaac. So the language is the same. But the reason that Isaac is, is, is not mentioned is because he's not the focus of the story. It was Abraham's faith which was being tested. And the passage ends just as it began with Abraham's name appearing twice, which then serves as an incluso, right? Like you have Abraham, Abraham, and you have Abraham, Abraham at the end, and then the whole thing is about Abraham's faith being vindicated by God. So he turns to Beersheba, and geographically speaking, the trip to Moriah was an excursion. Theologically, the matter has been settled as to his ultimate ultimate trust. Abraham's spiritual sojourn was coming to an end. His faith has been proven, and he will eventually enter into his ultimate rest. As Abraham brings his son Isaac to Mount Moriah, He seemed to be torn between obeying the Lord and nullifying the Lord's promises. At least we could imagine that would be the case. But as usual, what appears to be a tension to us is no tension for God at all. For God will provide. For one thing, Isaac was never going to be sacrificed. God's plan all along was to provide a substitute. Again, quite frankly, this is a picture of the substitute of Christ for us. This was God's plan all along. The Lord Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is the substitute who takes our place, for He is the only mediator between God and man. His perfect righteousness, His active and passive obedience at the cross has purchased salvation for us. He died in your place and in my place as we trust and rest in Him. Which is to say that we are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ our Lord, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb without spot or blemish, who substituted Himself for His people, His death so that we may have life, His resurrection from the dead so that we may too enjoy resurrected life on the last day. When you consider the sinfulness of man, the terrible situation of our world, one could become distraught. Our study of Genesis and our awareness of the world around us reminds us of how utterly wicked the world is. In fact, our own hearts testify to our own sinfulness. But the Lord, beloved Christian, will provide. In fact, He has provided. He has won for you His perfect righteousness and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Take joy and comfort, beloved Christian. Trust and rest in Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the promises that though, uh, as as we've seen really throughout the study, that the seemingly impossible situations that You provide... We're thankful, God, for um, 
that this in type and shadow points forward to Christ, our Savior, who dies in our place, who willingly and joyfully went to the cross for our salvation, whose blood was shed for us that we may have life. We're thankful, O God, for our Savior. We're thankful for the ways in which you use trials in our life to build our faith up, just as you built up Abraham's faith, just as his faith was vindicated, that you use suffering in our lives to vindicate our faith, to grow us in our faith. May we stand firm and have steadfastness in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.